Under the boardwalk, down by the sea, yeah, yeah. On a blanket with my baby is where I'll be. Under the boardwalk, we'll be having some fun. Under the boardwalk, we'll be falling in love. Under the boardwalk, we'll be eating some cheese. Under the boardwalk, yeah, just you and me. Under the boardwalk, boardwalk. In the smells of French fries they sell under the boardwalk down by the sea. Yeah. Oh yeah, on a blanket with my babies, where I'll be burning down. Hi everybody. Yes, as I said on the show, Great Lakes Federation. It's inevitable. It will be the. Uh, so here's how I see it breaking down. The United States collapsing from the in, uh, uh, from the center, as all great empires do. Uh, the decline of central authority to be replaced by regimes of regional authority. And I see that as you're going to have big swaths of just uninhabited area where people are going to be, uh, they're going to flee. Uh, the ones who stay are going to live in abjection. Those who get out are going to be rounded up probably and... Uh, into migrant camps of some kind. Then you're going to have hugging the coasts, some concentration. Uh, I would, I, but I think, and and then maybe in like southern Florida, just the tip that gets like dammed up. You get like city states, you know, like uh, like northern Italy, New York, Miami, Caribbean ones. And then you're going to have a land-based Great Lakes Confederation that's going to be able to hold a significant chunk of territory. Well, I think inevitably coming to some sort of political, I don't know, either a merger or annexation, or merger with or annexation of Canada. And then Canada, and then that Great Lakes Canadian Confederation can sort of be the new Holy Roman Empire. And then city-states on the coasts. And then, you know, a few uh, vestiges of, like, local authority, you know. Uh, dukedoms, baronies, as they call them in uh, the Dark Tower. Uh, Texas would be, I think, will be some sort of... If we do end up with, like, a formal regime of, like, military rule, popular military rule... Not just like a, a, a military dictatorship with no uh, civil society, but a popular military uh, regime. You'd have that most likely to emerge in Texas. But of course, a big chunk of that place will be literally uninhabitable, and there'll be some sort of constant warfare to uh, Mexico in some form or another. That's for sure. Uh, that border is going to be a blood 
bath. That that's gonna be just a the real grandy is gonna be running red. I think all those uh, all those Midwestern states are uh, the ones bordering the Great Lakes anyway are really gonna have to uh, come together, get over their petty sports related uh, conflicts, and become unified because they're gonna come for that water if they aren't. If they are going to take that water, if you let the California, if they if let them divide the Midwest, the Californians, fucking Colorado, whoever else, New Arizona, they're going to take it. But if they hold on to it, that will mean the death of the Southwest. You know, that's the thing. And if the Southwest dies, then the people are going to scatter back and probably be rounded up, processed in some way, turned into. Uh, economic units with less rights than uh, people who are already living there. But yeah, they're going to have to get over uh, like Packers, Vikings, rivalry, all this petty bullshit. Oh, the Bears, get over yourself. Mich Michigan, Ohio, shake hands and forget about the Toledo War and fucking Ohio State, Michigan. If there was some way that we could uh, cut Indiana out of it, that would be nice. But sadly, they're right there. They got a prime chunk of real estate there. But goddamn Indiana, wow. Like, if you, you look at the Great Lakes states, the outlier, the cruddy one is Indiana. And then, yeah, I know people say, oh, what about Ohio? Whatever you say is bad about Ohio, multiply that by 10 million and you got Indiana. Indiana, the people talk about Ohio, it's like, you, Ohio, because it's relatively large and it has that very odd German-esque uh, diffusion of urban areas instead of concentration, that makes it kind of interesting. It gives it different regional flares, like Cleveland is a Rust Belt state through and through, or a Rust Belt city through and through, uh, uh, Dayton is a classic uh, overgrown uh, land-grant college town. And Cincinnati is a fucking southern state, basically, or southern city, essentially. Indiana is just, uh, it has Indianapolis, which is the boringest major city in America. It's the only one not near some significant body of water. Uh, architecturally brutal. It just like looks like a bunch of charging, uh, like phone chargers sitting up. Uh and then, of course, Gary, the the most devastated uh, uh, Rust Belt hellscape you could find. It's it's brutal, Indiana. And yet, there's they got that coastline, so they have to be in on the deal. Annoying. They really shouldn't get full sovereignty, though. They should become a vassal. Don't say you can't hear me, smart Alec. I know that's not true. I know it doesn't just go out. So suck me from back. Now, California does have a lot of agriculture. They've got that arable land. They're fucking Ukraine. But uh, if they need water, that's a different story. Now, the thing is, though, global warming has now changed weather patterns so that now, this last season, we have had significant sustained rainfall in California, well beyond historical norms. Uh, and 
building snowpack that's been lost over uh, decades, if that is a semi-permanent feature, then California can really punch. If if they're if they can have some sort of access to their own water, and honestly, if they really if if California was like, okay, we're going to be a state, no fucking around, no more dicking around, we got to be a functioning polity. How are we going to do it? They really could because a lot of that water that gets wasted, a lot of that water that gets used in California is used for the growing of cash crops like pistachios and and almonds in the Central Valley. You don't have to have those things. You can say no. Now, of course, we can't say no because our systems will not allow us to address any core problems with our system. But if if the knife of necessity gets to your neck, maybe holding on to a organized state supersedes keeping the fucking Central Valley farm families in clover. So California, I don't think you can write it off unless there is a devastating earthquake that just cuts the fucking thing in half, which would be very funny. I think California is a contender. Uh, the Pacific Northwest, uh, I honestly feel like that Va Vancouver and the Pacific Northwest getting pulled into a uh, political orbit of China. If China is able to power project, like if we're assuming that America's fall is uh, does not mean China has fallen, that China is still, you know, uh, moving through Xi's plans for the future. If, if China is still, it would at that point be the new hegemon, and I would be able to Im uh, make hegemonic influence. I think it would be able to make its biggest alliances. Uh, its biggest influence in that Pacific Northwest region from British Columbia down to Oregon. And then California would, I think, be smart to become, not if not a vassal, uh, a junior partner in an alliance. Then you've got the military uh, uh, conquest state of Texas. You've got... Uh, the climate wasteland, belting a lot of that. Maybe uh, Denver probably holding out as some sort of city-state based on the airport. Pacific Northwest, uh, a Chinese uh, bridgehead to North America. Then the uh, North, the the uh, Great Lakes, Canadian uh, uh, Imperium there. The South, probably a bunch of private, small private regimes, uh, like a techno, an, a, a self-conscious attempt to reimpose like some sort of uh, feudal relations, but it's just this sad farrago. And in reality, it's they're just cosplaying on top of the same uh, uh, supply chain that the rest of capital is. And like the capital does still exist there. We'll still be doing that. real question is, what happens to the nukes? That is the most important question. The only real question. <laughs> what happens to the nukes? And this is where I think the federal government does come in. 
unable to govern in any meaningful way the United States, unable to compete with these new local forms that have emerged out of the collapse of the legitimacy of the central authority, you will have what, I've said it before, the United States military as an independent force. I think at some point that military infrastructure gets taken over not by any of the competing powers in the continent, but rather is uh, decommissioned, decommissioned by the new Chinese-led global economic order. Now, whether or not that succeeds or uh, there's a failure to collect all the nukes, then Katie bar the dang door. But it's going to be interesting, that's for sure. And none of us talking right now will probably live to see any of that. But we could, and if we did, this is the funny thing. This is what must be understood. The thing I'm describing to you. Well, from this angle, that's the post-apocalypse, right? It will not be experienced subjectively as such. Because the parts that fall into apocalypse, the climate uh, zones of death, and the the liminal uh, spaces that are contested over, the people who are there get written out of the narrative. They get written out of uh, the sub- the culturally expressed subjectivity of uh, Americans. They're off the table. Who The people still on the table are those who are surviving within these rapidly changing institutions. And while they might be changing rapidly by historical uh, speeds, by personal experience, if you stay inside the zone of uh, Law, if you if you stand the, on the right side of the Agamben uh, rate uh, blade that's coming to chop the Homo saucers and separate them from the citizens, if you stay frosty, your life is the same as it is now. You are you are engaged in the same basic job, the the same basic relationship to capital, your neighbors, the same mediated passive, spectative reality. And that's what I mean when I say the apocalypse has already happened and cannot happen again. Because we missed our chance to do anything collectively other than nuke ourselves. And that's why the nuke really might be the end of this, because pressing that button at a certain point becomes existential defense, survival against extinguishment, not of the self, but of the concept of self and the concept of the embedded world that you represent. Because we are locked in a ethos of debt, right? Everybody owing something to somebody. And our economy is driven by the, the, the settling of weight debts 
and the accumulation over time of debt, and also interest on the other side of the scale. Histor historically, cyclically, in, in pre-capitalist syst systems, uh, the in the ancient world, there would be a periodic moments of jubilee where all debts would be wiped clean so that the social order could be maintained. Because if you have too much debt accumulated for too long and a continued expectation to have to pay it back, at a certain point, full alienation between the debtor and the debtee accumulates. A recognition that there can never be redress and never be an end to a subservient relationship emerges. And when that happens, you have people in violent opposition to each other and the, the social order that they're, they're part of. The Jubilee is necessary to stabilize that relationship and keep people moving through it. And when you don't have that outlet, your social order collapses. It happens everywhere. It's happened every time. The debt-based social order has, can only lead to collapse because there is no one in a position of power who can call a Jubilee because they owe somebody too. There is no one who just holds the debt. The debt is held abstractly. The debt is held by the uh, by the machine. It's held in the memory of the machine. It is not a human uh, possession. So that means all humans owe. No one can say, let there be a resolution to this. Let us have a jubilee because no one can be forgiven. And since you can't be forgiven, can I accept being willfully deciding to not be on the top of the social pyramid anymore? Can I willfully step down and be socially dominated in, as a, in, in uh, addition to being dominated by the abstract algorithm? No. I would rather die on my own terms and end the human pageant uh, in my through my experience. Like if everybody dies with me, then I will avoid judgment. Now and forever. In the minds of, uh, of future people, because there won't be any. At least that's what you're hoping when you press the button. I mean, Putin is a very good uh, case for this, because you've got a guy who is he's getting older, uh, COVID probably seemed to push his wig back a little bit and freak him out about his mortality. He's become a germaphobe if he wasn't before. He knows that uh, full enthrallment, full uh, surrender of national wealth, however you want to define nation, to international capital uh, is inexorable. And NATO is just the tip, the the uh, material tip of the spear of it. It's it's a all-consuming process that's mostly happening on fucking in. Uh, it's mostly happening in ledgers and uh, books of account. And if that's the case, if you don't do anything, if you don't move off of your spot, you will be destroyed. Then you got to try something to validate your own 
uh, worth. How? What are you worth if you will not act at the final moment? Now, the problem is, is that we have a subjective understanding of like how much danger we're in, personally and existentially, uh, that is not necessarily a reflection of the real threat. That is grounded by the uh, uh, comparing the notes of your experience to other people. And the higher up you get into a system like that, uh, a, a personalist regime that has to hold in its person together all of these insanely uh, destructive and, uh, and uh, termite-like contradictions of this of this state, this national project that is also just a pure oligarchy, then you're going to uh, lose it a little bit. And you're going to decide, I got to do something. Because even if it brings everything down, it will be on my terms. Rather than the terms, because it is not defeat that we fear. It is, uh, it is conquest. It's being, it's, it's not being losing in battle. It's being changed into a condition of servitude where a certain fundamental element of our sense of self-worth and identity is taken from us by our consent to be dominated, which is what comes after defeat. Which is why if you launch a fucking nuke, you don't have to worry about uh, conquest because it's all over. And so if, uh, if they can get Putin to climb down here without launching any nukes, that will be a sign that maybe there still is a guardrail there, at least for now. But who the hell knows about the future? I'm vibing, though, because I really have detached my need for the human project as such to be continuous in my mind, plausibly, and, and for like life to have meaning. And I think that is a big problem, is that people feel like, if, if I don't believe that I'm contributing to a project that I can imagine extending outward beyond me for a significant period and transforming into something better and more than what I am now, then what was the point of anything? What is the point of anything? Uh, and I say... Uh, the point is never made by that, that uh, fantasy of the future. Uh, that is only a reflection of, of the life that you're living moment to moment. Like what you think you're moving towards or hoping for is also being reflected in your thoughts and actions in your life. So if you're like, oh no, it's not there, it, we won't get there, what's the point? The answer is, it's here right now, in everything. In every moment, every moment of experience has the potential to shine with that light, to, to reflect that eternal vision. And the actions that you would do with a belief in your heart that that thing will exist or a belief that it won't would be the same if you're attentive to what is happening to you now instead of deciding, oh, uh, what difference does it make? It makes a ton of a difference because it's your fucking life. 
It's your fucking life. You are given the chance to be the eyes of God, the taste buds of God. It's an insane, an insane gift. And so that means everything has meaning. Everything is charged, brimming with, with breathtaking meaning. Every moment is. And, and your desire to imagine a future for humanity uh, it's not as though that thing has to be made in order to mean that the thing you're in your heart is real. No. The feeling is the real thing. The sensation that drives you to act out of hate to be cheesy but love that is the real thing. That is the eternal thing. That's the thing that, by definition, must have happened somewhere in some way that we are in touch with. And if they don't launch the nukes, well, then holy crap, look what, what could happen. Wow, shucks. Now we've created a blueprint for future humanity. In our in in some some small way, some something that will echo. And I honestly think it will, regardless. But because you know, you can't step in the same river twice. Like the reason for that, there's this overwhelming despair is that we create we. We killed. We dethroned God as a belief in anything outside of ourselves. Belief in the reality, like the fundamental reality of the subjective experience of others. We kind of got rid of that, and we replaced it with a totally sensuous, personalized uh, self. That uh, it, it might believe in God, it might not, but it doesn't matter because, regardless, it is a fundamentally uh, antagonistic relationship between su the subjective individual and everything else, including God. God is unknowable and separate from us. That is the definition of any God that, that we claim to really believe in. And that's what fuels uh, the... That's why modern religion cannot actually be the solvent, be the, uh, the thing that reduces pain, the opium that Marx talked about. It can't even operate as opium. They had to switch to fentanyl, which is uh, sensational pleasure. Sensational pleasure is the so sacred. Ses sensational pleasure is the holy. Sensational pleasure is what is to be sought. And that worked as long as there is a horizon of future greater sensory pleasure because we know it very quickly where the, the the pleasure wears off because you're moving through time conditions change you're really just trying to ignore a hole in yourself try to pass stack these things up so it gets old quickly which means you've got to keep moving towards greater the fucking hedonic treadmill.
And that horizon powered capitalism across the entire globe. But now it has foreclosed. There is no way that you can promise anyone in the sensory enjoyment, pleasure, uh, uh, God seek and worship of the West. You can't, it's no longer powered by a belief that contrib contribution and perpetuation of the system as it currently exists will provide you with that. And so now we're just in this uh, panic mode, banging against the glass cages that we all live in, frantic like fucking canaries in a coal mine, because in the absence of, of that horizon, then you're only left with the diminishing pleasures of life and the increasing knowledge of one's own mortality and of the, uh, the ephemerality of everything that you've spent your life pursuing. How do you deal with that gap? That is the famed midlife crisis. Is that emergent gap as you wear out, the pleasures wear out their welcome. And there is that the, the search for meaning is what's driving this uh, uh, these religious frenzies uh, that are now not religious anymore so much as political because we still only really believe in the sensory pleasure as as goal as freedom as self self identification we still believe in that. Uh, we just want we just now want to change the system to give it back to us so it takes this political term turn like fucking qAnon which is really is a consumer revolt among americans who were like i have completely absorbed the idea that the definition of freedom is my freedom to consume that is i've i fully internalized that as the sum of my will to power is my will to consume. But I am now in a situation where I cannot hope to consume any more than I am or any more pleasurably than I am now, and in fact, only to do less so. This is unacceptable. I am going to stop it. And since I'm just an isolated cons uh, media uh, determined, mediated creature... I'm going to turn it into a fucking uh, a, a narrative, a, a fun story to tell myself to keep me from actually doing anything, which would take me off of the uh, treadmill, which I'm terrified to leave. And yeah, cons uh, conspiracies just re reinforce the consumer model because it, it takes you from a point of action this system doesn't provide for me anymore and turn it into, oh, here's why this story, and I have to now, instead of doing something about it, I have to go and l read about this story and watch stuff about this story and then tell other people about this story.
Because how do all conspiracy theories, and the fantasy of the end of all conspiracy theories is not uh, people coming together and acting in any way. It is some truth coming to light and t kicking all of our institutions, which have per perpetuated all this awfulness, kicking them into, uh, it's like when they take the Krusty the Clown doll and switch it so it's not, uh, uh, here's your problem, somebody put this doll to evil. Like they just take the institutions of governments, like Senate committee hearings and uh, and uh, the media, and they just turn them into weapons for good because everyone finds out the truth. But everybody knows, as Leonard Cohen says, all this stuff. Everybody knows what they do. What they don't know is what to do about it. And uh, f focusing on conspiracies allows you to avoid that question. But again, it's uh, it's entertainment is the thing, and that's fine. It just it doesn't work as a political organizing tool, and it needs to be understood that way. Man, I cannot believe that the Chinese ended the Yemeni war. Is that actually happening? Wow. I mean, it it was in a, you look at it now and it's like, well, this was inevitable, wasn't it? Because you had a situation that was fundamentally untenable in the Middle East. You had these this rising these rising powers fueled by oil money, creating a a regional uh, conflict, power block conflict, broadly the Shia Crescent versus uh, the Gulf states, but and like fighting over the Levant and stuff, and of course then America's colonial outpost in Israel. Uh, this is an, obviously an incredibly important uh, geostrategic region. It's got all the oil. The U.S. tries to... Uh, the thing is, the U.S., during the, the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were both uh, sponsors of different states within uh, this conflict. Uh, but many of the uh, states themselves would play both sides against the middle to try to further their own more narrow goals, which is how these relationships work. Then the Soviet Union ended, and it was this Euler polar thing, where now the United States is supposed to be the arbiter of disputes that it is a participant in. Because, of course, there is the, the U.S. as a government actor with alliances and interests can't be administering these international institutions that goes against the concept of internationalism. And that alienation builds at the heart of these relationships. And the United States becomes an absolutely... Uh, a useless uh, broker. It cannot be considered an honest broker in any negotiations. So the fucking all this stuff goes nowhere. China over there, so uh, a a guarantor of something because it's a huge. It doesn't have military bases in the Middle East, but it's a huge consumer of energy, and it has its own uh, uh, willingness to build energy infrastructure. So they are now able to come onto the scene without any previous alliances, without any assu assumed bad faith, and they can do things that the United States is, even though they're supposed to be the hegemon, incapable of doing, even if they wanted to.
it does feel like yeah, China's gonna China's going to continue being a thing after the United States has stopped being a thing. Now, what that means, I don't think it means we get socialism. Uh, more likely, I think it means that humanity churns its way back down to a new equilibrium between human population, technology, and resources. I don't know what that is. I don't know what the ratio is. But then in that new arrangement, which breaks up previous political identities and, and concepts, although probably leaves, you know, um, geography as the print, you know, play, people place where people are now will be the place people are still in the future, even if there's fewer of them. And then out of that will emerge a new relationship between the individual, uh, the social order, technology, uh, ecology. Now we can, will it be just a return to barbarism with robots or will the experience of having churned through the world as we have provide fertilizer to allow for new shoots to grow? I suspect that is how it works because it's how it's worked up until now. The only difference is, is that the human stakes are higher than ever because we now for the first time have a truly global economic and ecological end state. And, that, and we don't have an experience for that. And the totalizing nature of that paralyzes us. But the thing is, that totalizing uh, effect, it masks the still significant domination of place and the existence of a space-time that defines this dynamic. We forget that because we live so much in the etheric plane. But when that center collapses, energy goes inward everywhere. I'm looking forward to the Great Lakes Holy Roman Empire, I have to say. Because it does really work. Like Ohio. Uh, okay, let me try to let me think of this. What 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 states would they be? I might do that. I might actually save this for the uh, Hell of Presidents uh, wrap up episode that we're going to be recording. I think next week. But I'll, I I will follow up on that now. But right then. But right now I'm I'm just trying to think what would be the equivalence to the, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, within, like, what would Ohio be? I think my gut says Ohio is Saxony. Uh, big, uh, filled with medium-sized cities, no one big one, uh, known for partying. I think Wisconsin... I think Wisconsin is Bavaria. Illinois is probably Austria. Chicago is Vienna. And then what would Michigan be then? Is Michigan the Palatinate? Maybe it's Bohemia. Ooh, yeah, I think Michigan's Bohemia. 
But I'll think more about this. And uh, uh, display my findings uh, on the recap episode. I think California is Spain. Florida is the Italian city-states, for sure. Uh, you know what? I think New York is the Dutch. Same as it ever was. Back Time is a flat circle. And New England is Old England. Pacific Northwest is France. No, I would say that uh, the Appalachians are the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, the the wilder uh, to the, the 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 less developed areas, where where uh, more formerly feudal regimes rule. Oh, I'm, uh, that's interesting. The Appalachians as as uh, Switzerland. I don't know. Maybe the Ozarks are Switzerland. I don't know. Texas is uh, is Texas the Ottoman Empire? I think Texas might be the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, the Appalachians are the Balkans. That's right. Because they're not formally part of the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, Croatia was. And Croatia can be like Eastern Ohio, you know, like by Athens, which is which is pretty Appalachian. And then the rest of the Balkans is, uh, is yeah, that's the Appalachian. And then, yeah, Texas is like a military expansionist state there to the south of them. That's that's the Ottomans for sure. Cajuns as their conquered janissaries. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew Turner, one one twenty five. That's very good. No, Chicago is Vienna because it's the biggest city. It's dominant. Like. Chicago is is dominates the economy of the upper Midwest the same way that uh, Vienna dominated the empire like it's the it's the uh, uh, imperial seat I mean and it, it it wasn't as much of an economic do domination but that's because now we live in a more economically dominated time so take the authority vested in the in the uh, emperor in the uh, Habsburg headquarters and compare it to the commercial power that Chicago wields oh Detroit 
That's a good one. Yeah, Detroit, I guess, would be Prague, maybe, since Michigan is Bohemia. All right, I'm going to get a map. I'm going to get a map of the United States, and I'm going to draw it out, and I'm going to decide who's everybody in the uh, the new Holy Roman Empire of North America. It would be funny if there was still a president during this period, and there honestly could be. You know, and it's just like Matthew McConaughey Jr. or something. It's just a pure celebrity, and the elections are just a, a fun ritual that everybody participates in. But all the real energy is in uh, local uh, political rituals of one kind or another. And of course, I'm not going to uh, make it by state. This is going to be chunks of states because it's not going to just be the big chunks on the map. I mean, even the American Civil War really wasn't like that. You do get a false impression when it's like, here are the, here are the gray states and here are the blue states. For one thing, huge chunks of those, blue sta of those uh, gray states were occupied for the whole war, so they never even were under Confederate territory. Secondly... The upcountry parts of all of these states, meaning the counties uh, up in the hills, in the Appalachians, in the Smoky Mountains, then to the Ozarks, across even northern uh, uh, Alabama and fucking Mississippi and Georgia. There, the population was overwhelmingly pro-union, anti-secession, uh, and disproportionately deserted from the Confederate army, avoided service in it, or formed guerrilla groups to defend themselves against the Confederate forces. West Virginia seceded from the rest of Virginia to avoid leaving the Union. That's why West Virginia did it. It actually was uh, unconstitutionally ratified, and they never even changed that. They never got, went back and made it legal. And that's like that sort of visualization does a lot to clarify what the war was about. So you take that real map of the Confederacy, these gray lowlands and these blue ridges, and you say, what is different about these two areas? And the answer is immediately clear. Plantation-based slavery cannot and is not practiced in those hilly areas, whereas it dominates completely the economy of the low-lying areas. And so in places where the slave economy is overwhelming and dominant and hegemonic, you have political systems organized around hostility to the central government and eventual uh, uh, secession, where the social organs are dominated by people who are not planters and don't depend on planters for their livelihood, people who are, for the most part, small dirt farmers who uh, have a uh, hostile relationship to large planters as competitors. Those people had no stake in 
the Confederate system and resisted it and made up a, a decent chunk of Republican voters in the immediate aftermath of Reconstruction. A lot of those scalawags that are, are, are blamed as awful opportunists who helped the damn Yankees destroy the South were actually upcountry uh, farmers who resented being dominated by some fucking uh, fancy bitch in a fucking veranda drinking a mint julep. And that one of the big lost opportunities of Reconstruction is if there had been fundamental land reform and a redistribution of land to white and black uh, landless farmers in the South, you could have built a multiracial democratic uh, political culture. Now, that's a huge if. And we came very, we didn't even come close to doing that. But there were moments, there were opportunities where that could have been pursued. The big one is not dispossessing the uh, uh, former slaves who had been granted land in South Carolina by the March, by the Sherman campaign through the South, which had all these uh, uh, escaped slaves following in their path and wanted to be rid of them. Here, just take some land. That could have been the nucleus of a grounded, durable political culture. And if it had been joined by redistribution of land and resources to the upcountry, uh, you could have had a, system, a situation where the uh, best interests the perceived best interests of su poor Southern whites, specifically ones in the upcountry, who are who didn't have the experience of fighting for the Confederacy, would have could have uh, perpetuated political power, but the entire project was sabotaged by Johnson. People want to say Johnson wasn't that responsible for the failure of Reconstruction because within it, uh, when when Congress comes back after letting him have that year for presidential Reconstruction. They immediately overturn everything he did, and they uh, and they overturn all of his vetoes, and they govern from that point on. But the year that Johnson ru ruled, the year of presidential of a presidential reconstruction, was the most important year. The first year is always going to be the most important year, and it was completely controlled by this fucking asshole. This guy who bent over himself to let back in all of the fucking slave owners into control of government by letting them get their citizenship back if they asked nicely because he was just a vain little tailor. He was a petty bourgeois bitch who was always resentful of below and above him, which is why the petty bourgeois is the, is the poisoned, rancid heart of capitalism and what drives it to self-destruction. It's that position where you're below one and above another and resent and fear both. And have no solidarity for anything but yourself. And that was Johnson. He hated slavery because it made those slave owners think they're so much better than him. But that meant when he had a chance, all he really wanted for them to kiss his ass and say that uh, they respected him. All he really wanted was their respect. And he had the power to extract it. And so he took it. And so he let them all back. He let all the slavers back into power. And then he took forcibly the land that had been distributed to former slaves. He sent the army to take them off the land. Those guys didn't go do that of their own volition. 
They didn't say, I hate having, I'm pissed off seeing these former slaves have land. Hey, guys, let's go down there and kick them off of it. They were following orders from Washington. If they had gotten orders to protect those former slaves from their white neighbors, they would have done that too. They would have gladly done that. These are the guys who killed all their friends during the war. You want me to go fucking rough them up? I would love to. And instead, he told them to go kick them off the land. And that you can't get back. And, and nothing that, pre that Congressional Reconstruction did, did make that back. They, could, they didn't uh, disempower successfully the planters. They did not take their land. They did not redistribute because they were fighting on terrain that had been created by fuck the reality on the ground that had been created by Johnson's first year, which is why he's the worst president we've ever had, and it's not even fucking close. Because the, mo the history of the presidency, like all human history, is a presidency of overdetermined moments where all we really are left to do is narrate to ourselves why we did what we were forced to do. But then there are apertures and openings and moments of fluidity where chance enters in and individual discretion can dominate. And that was the American Civil War. And so... Uh, there was a febrile open moment there after the war and Lyndon and Andrew Jansen comes in and just takes a big wet shit all over it. Like Buchanan was breathtakingly bad. He demobilized the U.S. military and handed over, supervised the handing over of U.S. military institutions and material to rebels. He was like doing, like you talk about what fucking Trump did leading some yahoos uh, to the Capitol where they could mill around and then get arrested. This would be like if Trump had let the Q people like into uh, fucking NORAD and given them the nuclear football. But here's the thing. The Civil War was going to happen. Civil War was on the agenda. The, the Democratic model of placating the South had come to a point where it could no longer be sustained because the citizens of the North would not sustain it anymore. You want to know why it happened? That is why. The What the Northern ambient voter was willing to put up with from the South had shrunk. And the demands of the South, as they felt the walls closing in, became more and more exorbitant, ex ex extreme, because they wanted to break up. And that's why if Franklin Pierce had been uh, 14th president and not Buchanan, I think he's the worst president ever. And if it's that fungible, I don't think it can adhere to the guy that much. But because like Fra Franklin Pierce was a, a feckless uh, doe face who only knew how to give the South what it wanted and had no other political uh, heuristic to work with. And, and it, he was as... Uh, as as principleless as Buchanan, he was also completely shit faced for his whole presidency. He might not even have known he was doing it. I mean, it's it's easy to forget this, but Jefferson Davis was James Buchanan's Secretary of Defense, War at that time. I'm sorry, Secretary of War was fucking Jefferson Davis. 
guess what? He probably would have been Franklin Pierce's Secretary of War. It's that's overdetermined. Anybody, any other conceivable human on earth that realistically could have been made vice president upon the death of, or made president upon the death of Lincoln would have been better. Wouldn't have been perfect. We wouldn't be sitting in the clover now, but the terrain, I think, would have changed things in a positive way. And that makes Johnson just a, a world historic piece of shit. And when you consider how much happenstance goes into that, like damn, maybe we do live in a in a, a the world that has to, for reasons beyond our understanding, be where nothing ever quite comes together. How the hell did I get on the Civil War again? God damn it. Honestly, yeah, shitlord theory of history is pretty interesting. Instead of great men, like, great man theory doesn't really work. Most of these guys are uh, great to the degree that they embody a moment and then stop being great the moment that they no longer fit the mold. Uh, but pieces of shit can, like, just grind history to a halt and redirect it in, in, in dramatic and stunning ways. Uh, uh, Andrew Johnson being a good example. In, uh, among U.S. presidents, John Tyler being maybe the greatest example. Uh, after, so the Whigs emerge as the alternative to the Jacksonian democracy, and with them, the dream of a developmentalist m m uh, merchant economy against the democratic vision of yeoman uh, conquest. Because that is the heart of Jacksonianism. Is every man will be a king on his own land that we will take from the Indians. We don't need to have taxes. We don't need to have banks. We just need to have our musket and our coonskin cap, and we just take what we want. We use the army to distribute it. Everybody has, is an individual citizen, and we get full liberty and freedom. We cannot be brought under the yoke of any power, including the money power. Uh, and the Whigs emerged. Among the specifically strong, the, the, the Whig heartland was not the mercantile East because there was a lot of working class people in the cities there that were Democrats. Uh, it, its real heartland was Henry Clay's uh, home area of Kentucky, the Western, at that time, Western United States, which depended for its sustenance on development, on building infrastructure, roads, canals. That was the only way it was able to sustain its economy and get its goods that are that are made to market. Hey, you want to be a bunch of yeoman farmers? Congratulations. Would you like to do something other than live at subsistence level? Would you like to maybe buy a nice uh, a nice Bible or a credenza or maybe some nice clothes? Uh, maybe have some fucking seasoning for your food. If you want that, you have to be able to sell your goddamn surplus in a market. And the only way to do that is if we build some goddamn infrastructure. And the only way we would do that is if we circulate some goddamn currency through a banking system. I'm sorry. And so it organizes around Clay. They get their asses kicked by Jackson and Van Buren as think when the when the economy is going well. 
because as long as there's cheap land to sell, that means you don't have to raise taxes on anybody or, or tariffs because you can just sell the land and have that fill the coffers. Uh, and as long as the Indians keep retreating, we can keep taking more and look at this, you know, we won that we, we, uh, we took the, uh, Louisiana purchase. Look at this. We can do, we can keep going. Fuck everything. We can do it. But then there's a banking crisis that hits during Van Puren's term. Oh no. What's that? Oh gee. Central banking. If you don't have it, you have these periodic busts that destroy the entire economy. Oh man. Oh, geez, what are we going to do about it? And of course, Van Buren, even though he was a political genius, had no answer to that because policy was entirely secondary to politics. Like, I don't know. I know how to I know how to get to be president. I don't know fucking know what to do about the economy. None of them did. And th so they just did what they already knew, which was ideological and uh, useless. And so America, even people who had the, the, the center of gravity of Democratic voters were willing to listen to the Whigs when they said, hey, maybe we build a development, a developed economy first. Instead of, we hold back, we stop expanding westward, and we do some internal development. Gain value that way. Yes, it means circulating money, but it also means more opportunity. Uh, now, of course, it also means capitalism, and it also means uh, wage slavery and the eventual end of the yeoman dream. Now, what the yeoman who fought that didn't realize is that they were digging their own graves anyway. Uh, but at that time, they could still believe in that horizon, and they fought to maintain it. And the Whigs tried to propose this alternative, but they never, ever got a chance to really carry it out, other than piecemeal in the state's things like the Erie Canal. And it's not a coincidence that one of the chief uh, centers of Wiggery is upstate New York, Buffalo. That's where Millard Fillmore is from. But their one chance to actually govern with Whig majorities in the House and Senate was after the uh, Panic of 1832 uh, and in the 1836 election, I believe, when they defeated Van Buren. But at that point, Henry Clay had lost the election twice they were like, you're not a vote-getter. Let's get this handsome general, William Henry Harrison. And he was a real Whig. He was a committed Whig. But then they wanted to extend an olive branch to the Southern Democrats who hated Jackson and the Democrats because of the nullification crisis. And they got John Tyler, this Virginia planter. And it's like, hey, these guys hate Jackson. Thing is, they didn't hate Jackson for any of the reason that the Whigs didn't like Jackson. They hated them because Jackson was too much of a centralizer and allowed for too much of a uh, federal system and didn't allow local uh, landowners enough leeway to control everything. So when William Henry Harrison becomes president, he, he was a real Whig. He was convinced about the ideology, ideology of the Whigs. He would have had, you know, Clay as his uh, political strategist. It could have done, they could have done something. They could have like, pushed us in that direction. Uh, but instead, Tyler spent his term just ripping the fucking wiring out with the insane idea that he was going to get a second term, not as a Whig, because he wasn't one, but as the head of a specifically and explicitly Southern slave-based uh, third party. He would be the head of a organized uh, 
a pro-slavery party that would dominate the South while uh, the Whigs and the Democrats broke up uh, the North. That was his plan. A solid South against a North and West divided between Whigs and Democrats. Never came into being. Uh, and he left after one disgraced term. And yeah, like the historical process that that was all part of, you know, it was not changeable. Uh, we're not talking about huge round uh realm of possibility, but what we are seeing is an individual guy just sticking his dick in the gears in a way that is very hard to find comparably for great men. So yeah, shit, shit Lord. Yeah. Tyler, I think still has living grandchildren because after his was president, he became uh, one of those disgusting old men who marries an 18 year old and he had a bunch of kids with her. I agree with Walter Benjamin that behind every fascism is a failed revolution. Absolutely, which is why I have a hard time using the word fascism to describe what's currently happening, because that would mean that there is a revolutionary situation, either now or in the recent past. And since there isn't, it's very hard for me to use that term. But yeah, like uh, when the working class is defeated, class resistance to solidifying capitalism doesn't go away. It's just transformed, uh, and the zones of conflict are transformed. So once the working class of Germany, for example, is defeated after World War I, and then split by the uh, uh, geopolitics of the Soviet Union and the, uh, the contest between socialists and communists, uh, while that's happening, the, the lower classes and the landowners, the small farmers of Germany coming together into a new class consciousness, which is the accumulated grievances of a bunch of socially atomized and fractured individual market actors. Yeah, but see, that's the thing. Somebody says 1960s. I don't think we were in a revolutionary situation in the 1960s in the United States. I think we were in a revolutionary situation in Germany in the 19, late 1800s, late 19th century, uh, post-World War I. You're talking about armed contests with the state throughout the entire place. Like, if the, if the, if all the armed rebellions that had occurred in Germany between the end of the World War One, and the final collapse of, I think, like the Munich Soviet, they'd happened all coordinatedly, and at the same time, you would have had a real potential to seize power in Germany for the for that movement. I don't think any s array of uh, of elements existed uh, in the sixties. And so you've got the, the so what 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 is fascism? It is this lump of pissed off, uh, petty bourgeois and smallholders, who are brought together not by any of them but by bohemians and former socialists. 
overproduced elites, people who are outside of that relationship of uh, of social reality, but who can use their abilities as uh, symbologists and as demagogues and as political artists. They can whip a story around, uh, whip up a story that could capture them. Yeah, like you, fascism is not socialism. It is, but it comes out of the failure of socialism and involves the uh, social vocabulary of socialism. That those who had sought to challenge the state are left with after it has collapsed, and you can either go with one of the remain the hot hand, the uh, the socialist party or the communist party. Problem is those things. Those organizations are disciplined by their relationship to a class, by the fact that they do emanate organically from the working class, one way or the other. If you're a detached, bohemian, layabout, failed chicken farmer, socialist agitator, any of the people who make up the early fascists, uh, uh, arms-dealing weirdo like Ernst Rom, uh, uh, military flyboy and... Uh, uh, Lausch aristocrat like uh, Hermann Goering. You're going to gravitate not there to the working class movements, ugh, but to building new ideas, building new vocabularies and trying to entrance the middle with them. And then once you have, you've whipped them into a revolutionary fervor, which is why even though this all bears a superficial resemblance to the dynamics of politics now, the difference is there is no mass to be mobilized. There is only a techno regime of authoritarianism that is already here. What you're scared of exists now. It is not a, 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 a eminence. It is not a threat. It is a reality. Your fear of that projected threat is your sublimated reckoning with the existing structures. Yes, the middle class is fake. The middle class is uh, a, a, a media fiction. Mediated existence allows for the creation of this deterritorialized identity that pulls you away from your relationship to capital and redefines your subjectivity along property lines. Middle class, what does that mean? Homeowners. Not always, yes, there's urbanites in the city who rent and they trade equity for the excitement of living in the city. Fine. But it's fundamentally homeowners. And the problem is, is that once that's, once that petty bourgeois id is awoken, it will not end, it will not cease until it is destroyed. Because it is an unsheathed death drive, because it is life without meaning. You are trying to enshrine the middle class existence as the totalizing experience of humanity. An existence that is by its definition 
empty of meaning, can only be made meaningful through consumption, through conquest of others, that holds no meaning within itself. Once unleashed, that will destroy everything. The working class political movement, on the other hand, is nurtured by an identity that is defined collectively. It is, by definition, extends outward of the self, as opposed to bourgeois, petit bourgeois identity, which is aggrieved isolation. See, this is an interesting question. Is the middle class a social construct specifically designed by the ruling class to mystify the self away from capital exploitation? It is that, but I don't think you can say that it's specifically designed by anyone. I think the real powerful currents that have pushed us in the direction of what we are and have fixed us where we are are no one's idea. They are the response of people to changing social conditions operating from an assumption that they will maintain their social standing within a system. And those decisions will create emergent properties that fix us in that situation. Like in the early 1950s, we emerged from World War II. We got the Soviets there. What do we do with them? How do we relate to them? Do we continue the war or do we actually pursue a peace? That was the real question at the end of World War I. And the Cold War has to be understood as a continuation of uh, hostilities. It's a continuation of hostilities. But that wasn't the only option on the table. The, the progressive wing of the Popular Front Democratic Party and the, the communists, uh, fellow travelers of all stripes, large chunks of the most active base of the labor movement wanted cooperation with the Soviets and a true end to military uh, production and a return to a, uh, a, a, they wanted the newly created state behemoth that had won the war to be put to social uses with cooperation with the Soviet Union. And I do think that is the dream in the minds of people like Harry Hopkins and FDR. Yes, they were capitalists. Yes, they pre re re rescued capitalism from its own destruction. But they, in their own minds, did envision, I believe, some sort of eventual re reformation of the end of capitalism, a, a, a euthanization of the rentiers in the phrase of Keynes. I think they believed that. But they, they would have had to have fought for it, and the capacity to fight for it was uh, not there, in large part because every other system within uh, the American political economy was operating against them and, and op working to neutralize them. Not because of a conspiracy, but because it was in the understood self-interest of all those other actors. The Republican Party, Main Street, uh, uh, Main Street USA, Chamber of Commerce types, big industrialists. Everybody knew this wasn't good in the long term for them. And so they pushed where they could. And that meant red-baiting, against the labor union and the media with the Red Scare. But it also meant giving the rank and file something. 
because the rank and file was politically mobilized and effective. So they had to be dealt with. And they were. And in so doing, they created this new middle class identity and this new spatial relationship, this new mediated subjectivity that obliterated their ability to act as uh, self-interested members of a working class. But not because anyone sat down and drew it up. It's because if you can't, if you're if you if you're tired of fighting and you're coming home from war and you want normalcy and you want uh, security, and somebody is off and somebody is offering you a quarter acre lot in a suburb because there was an immediate and massive housing crisis in America after World War II. There was no room at the inn for these GIs coming back. People were living in chicken coops in some American cities. So where are we building this? Where where are we building this? Are we going to build up in cities? Are we going to build public housing in cities like the, like the Brits do, where we have to co up against existing power structures, or are we just going to take some of this fucking farmland now that we have automobiles, just tear it the fuck up and offer people a mannered dream, the the upper class vision of autonomy. Married to the yeoman self-sufficient fantasy. And it's because that's what everybody has been pushed. That's the direction everybody had been pushed into by the reality of America's development out of exploitation of resources and Real estate speculation. Real estate speculation. There is no coincidence. It's no coincidence that our first president and our most worshipped public figure of the founding generation, George Washington, was a surveyor and land speculator who helped cause the Seven Years' War by killing a French officer in a skirmish while uh, exploring land for a real estate company that he was a partner in. And of course, the real tragedy is, is that the, the the Soviets were absolutely willing to play ball. But that would have led to war too. Can't be forgotten. But maybe along different lines. Maybe along productive lines. Stalin was good with it because he was uh, his army, his country was exhausted. I mean, they'd lost tens of millions of people to the war. Massive areas of uh, of land had been completely destroyed. In, massive amounts of infrastructure had been completely destroyed. They were in no condition to keep fighting, which is why you know it's like okay, fair enough. But at the same time, you're also signing your surrender, which is what they ended up doing when Truman got in there. 
and told them in no uncertain terms, it's war, they, uh, they did not uh, realize the implications of that because they thought time was on their side. They really did. Everybody thinks time, when you're on the top, you always think time's on your side. And I think what we're dealing with now is a crisis in part because the people at the top don't think that anymore. Everybody doesn't think that. Nobody thinks that anymore. I will give uh, Truman some credit for really like being a fully uh, actualized demonic entity because there's a story about uh, him meeting Oppenheimer after they dropped the bomb on Japan. And Oppenheimer shakes his hand and he's like, I feel like my hands are covered in blood. And then after the uh, meeting, Truman turns to the guy who set it up and goes, don't ever fucking have me meet that idiot again. He's whining about the blood on his hands. I'm the one who pressed the button. I'm the one who did it. I did it. Like, that is someone who understands uh, that power is beyond good and evil. And Oppenheimer, yes, being a little dork. Somebody says, will there be a new party after the eventual demise of the Democrats? I used to think the Democrats were going to uh, collapse, but with this with this suburban shift and the, the the durability of it, I think you're more likely to see the Republicans break up, uh, uh, finishing off the job of the Whigs. Because, like, they are in a uh, real bind. They are risking becoming non-viable as a national party, which is what was happening to the Whigs. Uh, and with if that happens, then something else has to emerge, you know? And the, the Democrats really own the center now. I know people, I know a lot of Republicans find that hard to believe. They'd say, no, no, no. Democrats are insane leftist loony people who want to cut your kids' dicks off. And it's like, look, that's how a lot of them like to present themselves on social media because it makes them feel radical. And I know that's how they look to you. But if you're someone who doesn't make politics their sole source of uh, spectacleized identity, if, it, if it's not that important to you, and you're looking at politics relatively casually like most voters do, you look like a fucking weirdo. You look like a psycho. And the Democrats, who don't talk about that stuff, like, except for a few you know, uh, uh, people at the local level, you see very few national-level Democrats uh, making it their business to talk about the, uh, the culture war stuff. Because they're afraid of it. They do think that the average person is a fucking Neanderthal. They do think that. But that has the benefit of creating this asymmetry that regular people are alienated by. So that means that the Demo Republicans are going to have, are probably going to have to do some sort of resolution of this crisis because they're, the structure of the party is more and more held by people. Uh, who believe like that they are in terminal crisis 
that like America is about to end and that any anything means needs to be done to stop that. Uh, at a time when the people voting are less and less likely to want to endorse anybody who says we're going to throw the current order in the toilet because they're relatively comfortable. They wouldn't be voting if they weren't. The people who vote because they're not comfortable, uh, they're always going to be outnumbered because most people who are uncomfortable don't pay attention to politics. There's plenty of strong parallels between Marx and Martin Luther. One of the big ones is their invective hatred of uh, hatred of anybody who they disagree with on relatively minor points. Uh, Marx had nothing like Luther and Marx had nothing like the hate for people who they disagreed with slightly because they felt like, no, I have figured this out and you're a fucking idiot if you don't get what is going on here. They were both very petty. And I don't think you can have that kind of productivity intellectually if you aren't petty to some degree at that level, because what they have in common is they're defining this concept. Like Martin, Marx and Luther both emerge to give voice to existing strands of thought that had not been synthesized yet. And so that meant that there were a lot of people competing with them for different interpretations of this moment. And they weren't going to look, they weren't going to let that slide. They were going to defend their version against others because they were in a genuine marketplace of ideas about the Reformation and about socialism. Germans, man. I still say it's something about the language. It drives you kind of crazy. Okay, guys, I'm done today. Let's talk to you later. Bye.